I know many Americans have reservations about the government's approach, especially about allowing the government to hold shares in private banks. As a strong believer in free markets, I would oppose such measures under ordinary circumstances. But these are no ordinary circumstances. Hi, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Laura Conaway. Today's Monday, October 20th. It's about 4.01 p.m. here in New York City. Adam, you got a first-hand look at the credit markets today. What's the deal? Well, it, it's I, I don't want to come out and say it's all good news, but it is better news. Uh, the Planet Money indicators, the, the main one we talk about here is the TED spread, which uh, is a rough approximation for global anxiety, for the amount of money moving through the banking system. It fell dramatically today. You actually noticed this before I did. It fell below four. It's now at 2.96. Wow. More than 18% drop. That's huge. That is a huge drop. And uh, 296 basis points or 2.96 you know, in normal times, before this whole crisis, you'd want to see that down in the 0.5% area. Um, so it's still way, way, way in the stratosphere. But it's nowhere near as far in the stratosphere as it has been, up well above four. Yeah, someone was saying that Bloomberg, which has a TED spread indicator, had actually had to add a five to its graph because the TED spread stayed up over four for so long. And creeped up towards five. It looks like it almost kissed five. <laughs> and basically, that's a measure of how much risk banks are willing to take on, how much they're willing to lend to each other. But I I actually was on the front lines of the credit crisis. Our friends at Tradition Asian Securities, uh, Will and Tom, who we talk to so often. I went down there this morning with Robert Siegel, the host of All Things Considered. Actually, I think right as we're talking All Things Considered, he's in New York. He's just on the other side of this wall here hosting All Things Considered, which is just going on the air now. And... uh, we went to our favorite money traders to see what was going on. Uh, Tom Corona, this compared to a typical day last year? Uh, very, very quiet. Uh, normal flows on a day for us, in just in institutional money markets, a slow day we would you know, transact three to four billion in, in fixed, you know, fixed state securities, meaning one month out to one year maturities. Uh, today, for example, we've transacted, I think, a total of $300 million, and that's extremely busy compared to the way it's been in the last four weeks. Yeah, Will Ashton-Reese, uh, about 10 days ago, you described being at work here as watching paint dry. Looks a little bit more active than that right now. Yeah, it is, but it's, it's almost as if the investing is forced. Uh, what we're seeing is the result of uh, or the anticipation of the capital infusion to uh, uh, certain banks, and they in turn going out and putting it to work in the term market. The people we're not seeing are the people who continually have a turnover of money, uh, that being the money market funds. We've yet to see them return to this market. Their big problem is uh, if you're a money manager and you're looking at these yields, these yields are just totally out of sight. They're salivating. They wish they could invest. Yields like like what? Well, you have uh, a Fed funds rate of uh, one to one and a half percent on any given day, even below one percent. But uh, you can go out and, uh, if you were allowed to, invest in the three month at four percent and six months at over four percent. They would love those returns. The problem with the money funds, though, is that while they can buy it, their fear is that they can't turn around and sell it if another crisis hits. So wait a minute, Adam. The idea is that now people don't 
want to buy because they're afraid they can't sell? Yeah, so so there's a few issues going on. One is, so let's say there's Laura Bank and there's Adam Bank. And Adam Bank needs money. I need a billion dollars to get me through the next three months. I want to borrow money from you. And you have an extra billion dollars. So in normal times, I would just basically I'd call Tom or Will up at Tradition Asia and say, hey, I need to borrow a billion. You'd call them and say, hey, I have an extra billion. They'd say, hey, Laura, meet Adam, lend him a billion dollars. So what I'm buying from you is commercial paper, commercial paper, okay. a big industrial sized IOU. What has stopped happening is that you're willing to lend. People still need to borrow. Banks are still desperate to borrow. But Laura Bank, the many banks, are not willing to lend for two reasons. One is they're afraid that Adam Bank's going to go out of business. You know, that we've seen so many major banks go out of business. They're afraid that if you lend me a billion dollars for three months, I'm not going to be around to pay it back in three months. But then the other thing is even if you're 100% convinced or 99% convinced I won't go out of business, you trust me, you still might need to sell that commercial paper. You might need to basically get your loan repaid in a hurry a month from now or two months from now because something else might happen in this crazy financial system and you might need to have that money available. And they're scared they can't. And they're scared that no one else will buy it from them. So even if the bank is sound, they're afraid that the investment itself will lose money if that makes sense. And so that the lack of trust and the lack of liquidity, the lack of ability to, to move in and out of these loans, which has been absolutely fluid for 40 years, 35 years, as long as this industry has, has existed, it's been totally trivial and easy, has completely frozen up in the last month. On Friday, we saw the barest hint of movement. Today, we're seeing just the tiniest hints of movement, but we are very far from where we were. So we have a question today, Adam, from a listener, and I think it started when I blogged about one of my favorite subjects, which is imaginary money. And someone on the blog had asked, what happens to the money in a write-down? If a bank says it's now worth $20 billion instead of $30 billion, where did the other $10 billion go? Right. And this is a question I get a lot. Where did the money go? And it's such a confusing thing because the simple answer is there is less money in the world than there used to be. And by the way, David Kestenbaum, our own David Kestenbaum, if you're listening, remember, you owe us a story on this. Where did the money go? That's right, David. We're counting on that. So what I said on the blog was it's helpful to think, for me anyway, of what's missing as value, that money is to value as degrees are to temperature. And I was trying to say that if you think of what's what's gone lost or gone missing is value instead of money, as in dollars, maybe that will help. But it immediately led to this question from Kelly Mosier of Lincoln, Nebraska. If the idea is that we are losing value and not physical money, did we ever really have that money to lose in the first place? And is that what is meant by deleveraging, the market trying to find its true value from an inflated one? Kelly Mosier of Lincoln, Nebraska. I have an economist for you. He's one of our favorite credit risk analysts, Shujit Das, and he can tell you all about deleveraging and, and and all about what it means when there's less money in the world. Das says the best way to figure out this word deleveraging is just take that D off. There's a lot of mystique about leveraging, but it's really about borrowing money. And let me explain. You can go buy a share of a company at $100. Now, if it goes up, say, 10%, you gain $10, which is 10%.
However, most of us are a little greedy. So we say, well, if the share price goes up $10, we want to make more money. So what we do is instead of paying $100 for the share, we put $10 of our own money and we borrow $90. What that means is if the share goes up $10, we still have to pay back the $90 because the debt has to be paid back. But our $10 has now become $20. So our return has gone from 10% to 100%. And that is the magic of leverage. And that is what the world has gotten completely addicted to. And the problem also is it's a bit like a narcotic addiction because initially you get a nice hit, but over time what we've all done is increased the amount of leverage to get returns that we've actually wanted. And so, so what has so happened – So you start – if I can just ask quickly. So sure. you start – the first day you do it, you go, wait, I just went from 10% to 100%. This is unbelievable. A month later, you're thinking, well, 100%, I always get 100%. I want 1,000%. That's absolutely exactly correct. To give you some idea of what the leverage level went, when I started, I was starting to see people with modest leverage in the early 1990s, and they would leverage like three times. So for every dollar, they would borrow $3. And the most uh, egregious example of that was people like the Bear Stearns hedge funds, which seemed to be borrowing 20 to 30 times. So for every $1, they had 20 to $30 of debt. So it became a terrible addiction. So they're playing with borrowed money. Absolutely. We like to not uh, talk about borrowed money. We talk like all these fancy terms like leverage, but it's always borrowed money. And my hunch is you're going to tell us that this is a wonderful thing when things are going up, but just like it amplifies the upswing, it, it, it does the same going down? Absolutely. So let me explain that on the other side. So let's say you had the share, which was $100, and you borrowed $90 and put up $10 of your own money, and the share price goes up $10, you make 100%. But the problem is if the share price falls $10, then you've wiped out all your money. And what can be extremely, extremely difficult is let's say the shares fall by $20. Then, of course, you've wiped out the $10 you have, but you now also owe the person you've borrowed the money from an extra $10 because the shares are only worth $80 now because, remember, they've fallen by $20 from 100 but your debt is still at 90 because debt does not change in its value. And that is the problem that the world is actually facing at the moment. We have a huge amount of debt. The problem is what we bought with it, ranging from houses, from shares, from just about every type of financial asset, what has happened is those assets are now falling in value, which means we have a major problem. And so the answer to that is deleveraging. And when we talk about deleveraging, what that actually means is you've got too much debt and you've got to get out of debt. And what we're now seeing is the world reduce leverage. And of course, the real problem was that it was the leverage, the ability to borrow money, to buy assets, forced the price of houses and all these other assets like shares up. And now they're falling. And so it starts to accelerate the fall. And that's why we're seeing stock markets fall. That's why we're starting to see housing prices fall so precipitously. And we see banks no longer lending money to other banks, banks not lending money to us, to companies. 
That's absolutely right. Now, the banks are a very interesting example of why we focus so much on the banks, because leverage is created by banks. Because banks, at the end of the day, are the bulk of people who lend money. So it's not surprising that they were always going to be at the epicenter of this problem. Now, banks themselves are actually highly leveraged, and this is one of the really strange contradictions. They create leverage, but they themselves are very highly leveraged, because they only really have $1 of share capital for roughly every $10 of loans they make. Now, in some cases, like the investment banks, like the much-lamented and departed Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns and uh, people like that, they essentially started to leverage by 20 to 30 times. And in one of the most amusing little anecdotes about this crisis is Henry Paulson, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, in about 2000, went to Capitol Hill and argued that the investment banks were so good at managing their own risks, they should be allowed to leverage more. So you've got the two things. They've lent money to people who've leveraged, but they themselves have a lot of leverage. They've borrowed the money that they've lent. So as this chain sort of starts to go into reverse, they start to lose enormous amounts of money. And what happens is when they wipe out their share capital, which is what they've done, they can't lend any more money, which is at the epicenter of the process you've just described, which is they stopped lending money to other people. So let me see if I try and picture these things and try and make make a very simple model. So 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 I I have a dollar. I call you up and say, hey, will you lend me nine bucks? I want to lend ten dollars to Laura because she's got this business plan. And so you you give me nine bucks. I give Laura ten bucks. She takes that $10 and she does whatever it is. She starts her, you know, tambourine uh, musical business. I'm thinking of that, yeah. Yeah, you've thought about that. And the first few weeks, she's making money. She's paying back the loan. I'm able to pay you back. Everyone's happy. But then all of a sudden, it turns out, shockingly, she's not a very good tambourinist and no one is paying her money. Sorry. I'm so, you're, you're looking very upset at this analogy. You know, an artist has her pride. Yes. And so she can't pay me back. I can't pay you back. And it turns out you owed someone else the money and on and on and on. That That's sort of the model we're thinking of. Absolutely. And there's a, a really, really bad element in this. I only wish we'd lent to Laura, the tambourine player. The problem is we didn't actually lend to real businesses. What we did in the speculative fervor that was going on is we just kept buying assets like houses and shares. And because there was this flood of money, those assets kept going up and up in value. Nobody was really looking at whether those values were sustainable. They were also not looking whether the income from the person borrowing the house was sufficient to service the debt. Because the picture we had was effectively, if the asset kept going up, well, that's fine. It doesn't really matter whether you have the cash because you can reborrow to pay the interest and pay back the loan. So deleveraging is the process of pulling back from being leveraged? Correct. Deleveraging is about getting rid of the debt. And what we're seeing now is the simple process. Now, it's all very common sense. If you have too much debt as an individual, what do you do? If you have something to sell, your tambourine or your whatever, you sell it, take the money and pay off debt. Alternatively, you stop spending money. You don't have a Starbucks cappuccino, you basically drink water from the tap. 
So under those circumstances, you reduce your consumption. Now, companies also do that, but they don't invest. Like you might have thought you would go to franchise your tambourine concept and basically expand across the United States, but you don't do that. And that is what is actually happening now. So people are trying to sell assets, and the problem is there is no market for many of those assets, certainly not at the prices that these people paid. So the prices of everything is falling. The second thing is happening is people not consuming, people not spending, and the shops or wherever they spend, and companies are cutting back on investments. And that's why the whole economy is slowing. Kelly Mosher, I hope that explanation from Suchajit Das helps you. We're looking forward to breakfast with Suchajit Das on Saturday. He's in town from Australia. Um, hey, Lord, you got that tape from Hannah you were telling me about? Yeah, I did, and I actually caught up with her, too. We're talking about Hannah Jaffe-Walt. She freelances for Planet Money out of KPLU in Seattle. She's our favorite. She's our favorite. Yes, yeah. we love her. We're in a very positive mood today. You know, Ben Bernanke, the Fed chairman, says that he supports an economic stimulus. That's that's lifted my mood today, definitely. Um, I'm waiting for the check. Hannah Jaffe-Walt recently did a segment about her own mail carrier, a woman named Andrea. She, you know, has a bit of information like where somebody works and who they live with, and then she will make up a whole story about who they are. Um, and lots of mail carriers do this. I think Andrea is particularly um, interested in people. And so she notices, you know, trends that happen. She notices when money gets tight or when credit is harder to come by. So when people started, you know, lugging out this big Main Street cliche, I kept thinking about Andrea and how she's, you know, on the streets and she really is actually has a, a unique perspective on what people's money stories are from through their mail. Was it hard to get her to talk to you? It wasn't. She actually, I mean, she walks around by herself every day, so I think she was just so psyched to have anybody interested in the things that she notices and the information that she has that people don't really, you know, aren't aware that, that mail carriers have about the neighborhoods that they deliver to. So she was she was totally psyched to talk to me. Hannah Jaffe-Walt, thank you. Let's roll some tape. Okay, before we can do this, I need to clear up one question. Yes, your mailman reads your postcards. She notices what magazines you get, which catalogs. She knows everything about you. At least, if your mailman is Andrea Demayevsky. So from delivering people's mail, I know where their family lives, what investments they have, if they have investments, where they go to the dentist, where they go to the doctor. I know who's retired, who's interested in opera, member of the NRA, member of uh, the Society of Jesuits, whatever. Point is, Andrea knows a ton about what's going on in that place politicians love to name drop recently, Main Street America. I ask her to please take me there. Yeah, Main Street's uh, about three quarters of a mile south of here, but I guess, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Andrea doesn't skimp on the salty mailman attitude. She owns the street on her route here in Seattle, a wide residential block where Section 8 housing butts up against glassy, snazzy new chic condos that cost half a million dollars. Let's see. Medical coupons from the state. Lots of bills. We start in the subsidized housing. Andrea notices her unemployed mom, with an affinity for black leather, is getting another overdraft notice. The minister is getting more late payment bills. Lots of bad news mail heads into these little boxes. Uh, Collection notices on parking tickets to overdue utility bills to towing Uh, lots that have cars that people aren't coming to pick up. Here's how the Andrea Mailman Index works. 
AMI for insiders. Certified letters, a major negative indicator. Credit problems almost always lead to certifieds, and certifieds are almost always bad news mail. Another measure, color. Normal utility bills, they're usually white. When you're a month late, the envelopes turn yellow. Way, way late, they all go red. Andrea's been noticing a lot of red lately. And one more signal of a downturn in the Mailman Index of Economic Indicators, more names on each mailbox. I've noticed a lot of uh, people moving in with grandparents or something. I'm just assuming that's what it is because it's a young guy who's getting like Hot Rod magazine and all of a sudden he's living with some, you know, this like 80-year-old woman who's, who's on Social Security. On the other end of the block, Andrea heads over to a couple businesses. And this, uh, this little cafe across the way, they don't have any mail today, but I think they're in trouble. You think they're in trouble? Yeah. And uh, I'll tell you how I know once we're a little out of your shop, which is one time I came in, they're always getting like credit things like, oh, you can, you can get a credit card with us, you can borrow more money, American Express, business services, whatever. I was like, oh, all I have is one of these today. And he's like, well, that's good. You give me those so I can give you these. And he gave me back a stack of paid bills. So he was pretty much admitting to the fact that he needs credit card offers in order to pay his bills. I'm guessing that that's not a really sustainable situation. And that was a while ago. These days, as Andrea watches the bad news mail gather into heavy stacks, the other kind of mail, that really dependable kind, credit card offers, have started to go away. I still see credit cards sending out stuff, but it has really, really gone down. There used to be a lot more of that. This is the way the Andrea Mailman Index registers that thing we've been hearing so much about lately, the credit crunch. Companies are less willing to lend money, credit card issuers less willing to give people credit cards. But the credit card companies aren't coming to people's homes to tell them, none for you, no thank you. Andrea shows up on their Seattle doorsteps, hands empty of free credit and full of red envelopes and certifieds. People always joke with me, please don't give me any bills, no bills today. And those jokes are usually funny, but sometimes people have a real desperation in their eyes and they see me and their face falls because it's like, what am I going to bring today? The TED spread doesn't care about feelings. It cares about interest rates. That's it. The Andrea Mailman Index, it's got its data, but the AMI sees other things too. It sees human beings. People living their lives, making their weird, irrational, shaky judgments. The AMI takes into account humanness. Well, I see a lot of, um, you know, people who you know are in financial problems, and then they they are getting packages from company like uh, QVC or Finger Hut, and people just keep buying them, buying them, and buying them on credit. And at the same time, you're bringing them. Certified mail or overdraft. With their package from QVC, yeah. The government is just starting on its $700 billion plan. As it moves forward, Wall Street analysts will be watching Wall Street. Fed economists will be watching Wall Street. Andrea will be watching the mail. That was Hannah Jaffe-Walt, thank you, talking about the mailman indicator. And Adam, are you like wall-to-wall and all things considered, right? I'm not sure. I got to talk to them. Uh, they're here. In the, they're here. Robert Siegel's in, in town all week. Native yeah. New Yorker, Stuyvesant High School grad, much like me. Really? And he grew up in Stytown. And uh, he's here to meet with lots and lots of uh, people in New York to see the crisis firsthand. And um, I'll 
try and tag along to a few of those. Where might you go besides the money market traders? Well, I'm trying to arrange an interview with Tim Geithner, the head of the New York Fed. He will never be recorded for broadcast, so we have to figure out what to do. Do we interview him and then have an actor perform the words he said? I actually, I honestly, I'm actually asking that. I don't know. Caitlin, would what you to do. would you play his part? She's, All right, she says yes. She says yes. Um, also, I, I just wanted to say something quickly. Uh, in case it's not incredibly obvious, Planet Money, we we are really making this up as we go along. I think that's fair to say. I studied. You studied. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm I'm making it up as I go along. And I feel really happy um, with the podcast. But there's some things that I want to do to to expand it that we've talked about and we just haven't had the time to do. So one is the daily check-in, how the credit crisis is affecting real people. And I, I, I hope we get a chance to do that. Yeah, we've, we've actually got some comments and, and emails from people who are volunteering, so we'll be following up even more. Yeah, exactly. So I, I'm, I'm very excited to do that this week. Um, I'm trying to encourage us to create some wikis because the other thing I want to do is get a reading list for myself, and I think a lot of people would like that. Just I feel like there's some basic things I want to understand better. One is I really want to understand what the government response to the Great Depression was. What happened during that time? Looking into what are the new rules that are going to be written in, over the next year or two that are going to completely transform capitalism. I feel like I'm not as prepared as I'd like to be for that analysis. Um, but that is all to come in the future. Um, there's something you want our listeners to do? Yeah, though? I was going to say someone asked me today if there's anything that I wish that you guys out there would do that you're not doing. And the one thing I wish you would do, actually, first of all, is – Take pictures of the economy you see around you. Caitlin Kenny put up a picture actually on our Facebook group, which is a great place for you guys to post photos. It's just right there for you. Just join it and post to it. She took a great picture of a guy, panhandler with a sign, saying that he was suspending his panhandling campaign for the for the economic crisis. I took a picture this weekend. I don't have it up yet, but I hope to put it on the Facebook group soon of a bagel shop saying that because of a drop in flour prices, it was actually going to drop the price of its bagels. Wow. Where was that? I was in Brooklyn Heights. The one on Court Street there? Uh, no, World? on Montague. Okay. I don't know. Come, come get a cheaper bagel, I guess. Yeah. But I will link to our Facebook group. Actually, I'd put it in every podcast post we do on the blog. And if you guys would join the group and start sending pictures of the economy as you see it, I think we could have a lot of fun with that. And uh, that'll do it for Planet Money today. My other pledge, my personal pledge is to blog more. You have really been – I have not blogged enough. I think the threat level may be reaching orange on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, you're really – I have to blog more. Yeah. Um, please join us at that blog, npr.org slash money. Our podcast, obviously you know about our podcast because you're listening to it right now. I'm Adam Davidson. I'm Laura Conaway. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.